I-94 on Lumpen Radio. All right, everybody. We're live from Pilsen Community Books tonight. This is I-94, Lumpen Radio's books and literature show. My name is Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Good evening. Say hi to the folks, Jeremy. Hello. And, and Mike Sack. Hi, Jamie. How you doing? <laughs> and today we are going to be talking about this book right here in my hot little hand, which you cannot see because this is a radio broadcast, Tiger Island by Reagan M. Sova. It's a fun book. It's a young adult novel, in my opinion. I mean no insult by that. Uh, about a group of kids that form a soccer team and go to the Olympics, and then things happen to them, which happens in all novels. But we're very pleased <laughs> to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. So tell us a little bit. You're a French author. Sort well, of, yes? yeah, um, I've been spending quite a bit of time in France uh, since about 2004, and a lot in the past year since uh, I became engaged to a French woman. So nice, I've heard that happens. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, she she has a fellowship in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, and that's a great thing. But I find myself being the one lobbying pretty hard to get us back to Paris as much as possible because I do love it there but uh yeah so I get the best of both worlds I suppose well I wanted to ask you one thing just before we get going there are a lot of references to Chicago and some Chicago bands and of course if you pick up this book you're going to notice that it's blurbed by some prominent uh indie musicians as well did you come from Chicago do you have a connection to this town or what was it about the city that, that drew you yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Jackson, Michigan, and so many of my friends ended up here. Um, one of the first nights that uh, I came alive with, with music and seeing live music and thinking that I wanted to play in a band, I saw Modest Mouse play at the House of Blues in 2003 in Chicago, and it was really my first time coming to a big city, and it was a big moment, and then since then, uh, many of my friends have been living here in Chicago. So it's funny, I've never lived here, but there's been times when I walk into the uh, Halstead uh, location of the Chicago Diner, and they're like, hey, that guy again, you know, like kind of getting to be a regular there. But uh, I went to school in Kalamazoo, and before Detroit started becoming trendy again, they used to call Kalamazoo the speed bump between Detroit and Chicago. So you graduate high school, live in Kalamazoo for a couple of years, and then moved to Chicago. Um, although uh, Mike and I both grew up in the west suburbs of Detroit. I've been here for 22 years. Um, and I was actually talking to your fiance, uh, Alice, before the show, and she has a really interesting uh, career path going, too. She's uh, an animal rights, she's studying or uh, animal rights, legal issues for animal rights. That's right. Yeah, we were talking before the show. I think that's really cool. Um, Mike and I are both pit bull advocates, so we had a nice little conversation. So. Yeah, that's good. Before you get off, the show's about me. Let's keep it where <laughs> it needs to be. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting work, and you know, I've had the honor to uh, proofread and, and edit and sort of be a sounding board for some of her uh, ideas, and um, yeah, I'm super proud of her. So. I also have to tell you, we tend to get way off topic. No, so that's fine. Yeah. Let's Multiple times. If yeah. you have trouble with that, well, we might yeah. be in big trouble here. You, you had it's kind a, of like a surrealist film around here sometimes. <laughs> you had a reading in Paris, yeah? That's right. I, um, what was that like? It was a smash hit, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it was uh, maybe uh, a third expats, perhaps, or um, and, then, and then a good number of... Uh, French natives who are are pretty good English speakers and a few who aren't, but that's all right. They're, they said they're going to sit down with the book and uh, and an English French dictionary and tackle it. So I was pretty honored by that. Uh, yeah, I gave gave a reading and the the bartender uh, it was at a little brasserie cafe bar and uh, she said I'm going to get your book and cut up the cover and make a frame it and and have a little commemorative. Uh, framed photo of the event and i was like oh you just put a feather in my cap so, yeah. i might have the uh, the perfect segue into talking about the book i was at work tonight and i had the book out on there's just one table two top for people to eat who order food in the in the grill and this girl comes in while another guy's waiting for his food <laughs> and she she picks up the book and looks at it for a second and the guy goes you you read that she goes oh yeah oh yeah classic 
And you know, this is this is a pretty new book. It came out in July. Uh, you know, small release, not instant a, classic. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> this lady's obviously a pathological liar. <laughs> <laughs> and then, hey, maybe so she's ready. You he, never know. Well, he starts asking questions about it, and uh, she goes, "Yeah, it's it's about this soccer player who travels the world. He's an orphan. It's deep as." You know, Blank. word, yeah, rhymes with buck. And she's like, I don't know why they made the font so big this time, though. <laughs> she was talking about, like, she'd known this book for years. So what's Tiger Island really about, and why is the font so big? Wow. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm happy to have her among the readership, I'll say. Uh, I, I don't know why the font is so big. I, maybe the publisher, Greg Ashwood, he just thought uh, we're going to – we want these pages to cruise. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I like it because I'm, I'm super into access and uh, making things as accessible as possible. And I don't know if it would help uh, someone with dyslexia or not. But, uh, you know, I know older folks tend to like the, the bigger print books. And, you know, so I like that sort of accessibility angle to it. Um, but beyond that, I just, you know, open it up and thickness wise, it adds a little. So that's a good thing, you know, <laughs> makes it look slightly more legit. So she, she had a couple things right about the book. Yeah. She did. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny, too. I, I was about halfway through the book and I was meeting Mike for coffee. And I'm like, hey, I'm like, you know, we're both from Michigan. I'm like, I never heard of this Tiger Island place. It sounds really rad. Like you would have thought we would have heard about it growing up. Mike's like, yeah, it's fiction. I'm like, and I knew the book was fiction, but I actually. I didn't look, and I'm a librarian too, and I didn't do any research on it, but I was like, oh, I'd live there, and I was like, I'm surprised we never heard about this. And there was actually, a, I don't know, like 10 or 15 years ago, there's a, a, an island right off the city of Detroit called Belle Isle, and they were trying, they wanted to, uh, there was a group at one time, and it's kind of the polar opposite of what you had going on here, but they were a libertarian group, and they wanted to create like a, like a Randian tax-free, like, Belle Isle. Oh, was that the guy, the head of Domino's? I think Tom Monahan might have been. I know he's I think like he was. I think he was involved. I know he's yeah. a big right to life for libertarian. So I because yeah. we used to call Domino's right to life pizza when we were in college. That was a long time ago. They don't really talk about him much because the pizza is terrible. But um, man, well, when you live in Chicago, you're not gonna eat Domino's. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like, I, I, I mean, I guess you can, but I, it wouldn't be something that I would think about. But um, so for our listeners, you know, Tiger Island is this kind of anarchist socialist commune that was uh formed um so we had a couple groups you want to tell us uh yeah so the island was uh initially in the alternate history it's an alternate history of a real island called beaver island in between the upper and lower peninsulas of michigan and in this alternate history uh the paris commune uh movement that was uh, put down by state force uh in this alternate history the communards as they're called uh, in real life went to Belgium and England and sort of went into exile. But in this history, they end up in Tiger Island, and they're soon joined by um, former slaves from New Orleans who are Francophone, French speakers, uh, but also speak English. So um, they read some anti-Jim, uh, uh, some, some abolitionist pieces and some anti-Jim Crow articles, and so get inspired to find this place. And uh, they end up working together and start a language school. And uh, I did quite a bit of research just in the maybe what we would say world building of it, because um, there is quite a sizable time timeline at the back uh, of the book. And I wanted it to be a real feel like a real world that people would like to go to. Um, I think you succeeded. Yeah, oh, I was there, yeah. man. Thanks, yeah. thanks. Yeah, the the story about Mike's doing like it's it's fiction. I'm like, oh, it sounds like a really cool idea. Anyway, so oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. the uh, the story about doing the research to to build the world for it. I was in my hometown of Jackson, Michigan. This was in the summer of 2014, and I had this stack of like you know 13, 14 books. I was sitting on a park bench in the library, and uh, or, or sitting on a park bench. Uh, in the park, I suppose. And, uh, and this old fellow came up to me and was like, uh, what are you reading there? And, and I've looked at half the books. I was like, well, studying uh, Beaver Island and, and French anarchism. And he kind of looked at me cockeyed and goes, 
do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? <laughs> You're like, no. <laughs> what, what attracted to you the story of the communards? There's, you know, there's several things that kind of open up there. And one of the things, when I was reading the book, it is a very well-realized, built world. Uh, and one of the interesting things, and one of the funny things I thought was that the young soccer team, and these are kids, they're kids that want to play, and they do play in the Olympics, and they, they play other uh, U23 teams. Um, which people in the audience may not know what that means, but world soccer is based on age groups, and uh, the Olympics is a U23 tournament um, as opposed to a U20 tournament or whatever. That's probably boring stuff that you don't care about, but my point was, in the book, one of the things that's very funny is that the kids are looked down upon for playing soccer because it's not contributing to the political movement. Uh, and there's a number of things that, that go on. There's a bunch of streakers that invade a game. Uh, some of the parents have to be convinced, actually, to just let the kids go. What, what attract? because I, I think you brought up some of the negative things, and I guess it was a more balanced thing and it made it feel more, more real. But what attracted you to um, the communards and this kind of history that really doesn't often get talked about? Wow, that's, that's a great question. Uh, in terms of the political uh, side of it and, and the communards, my thinking has been influenced uh, quite a bit by, by Noam Chomsky uh, probably in the past like 15 years, I'd say. Uh, and so he's, you know, I don't know if you'd, you'd call him uh, an anarchist specifically, but definitely a fellow traveler and, and he's written on that quite a bit. So that sort of led me into the, the political history and then my own experiences in Paris and how that city uh, has been very important to me. Uh, before I went there at age 20, I was, as David Berman croons in a song, I was dead from the neck up, you know? So I went there and things changed. Uh, so that's what led me to the, to the political aspect, getting to intertwine sports into it um, and this is relevant for uh, for the city we're in now. My, I would say my first moment of political anger uh, came when I was 11, and I was watching every single White Sox game on WGN, and uh, it was Frank Thomas and Black Jack McDowell and Hawk and Wimpy, and you can put it on the board, yes, and all that stuff. And and they were maybe the favorite to win the World Series that year, and the strike happened, and oh, I got this right. this first taste of like you know big business and sports and and you know it kind of opened up my world a little bit so from from then on I kind of had this fascination with sports and, and politics as one well sports writing used to be a big deal you know I, uh, I, I wanted to mention too I uh, Jamie knows quite a bit about soccer he wrote a book called love and blood at the World Cup with the footballers, fans, and freaks, and uh, I have this in my library. I gotta get a copy of that. Yeah, and um, it was interesting. There's an essay in here, or, or like a chapter break, where they talk about when Pele came to play in the United States in the '70s, and soccer had this huge, um, well, it wasn't a resurgence. What would you call it? Like a blossoming? Yeah, Pele when he came into the NASL. Um, really opened American's eyes. He was at the time the unquestioned superstar in the game and he was a magnetic figure. He was the Michael Jordan basically of the sport and when he came to America to play for the New York Cosmos uh, in the 70s uh, even though he was at kind of the tail end of his career he was put on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He was treated uh, as as the real deal. You know what I mean? People people respected him and knew he could play, knew he could play the sport uh, but moreover he was kind of looked on as a Pied Piper for the sport and people forget this because our memories are rather poor but the NASL actually at one point was considered a serious threat to the NFL in terms of attendance, in terms of attention. Um, that's been forgotten and downplayed a lot, but you know, Chicago had a very good team here called the Chicago Sting. Uh, the Cosmos were excellent, the Diplomats in Washington were pretty good, and it, it looked for a while as if soccer was gonna take off, and a lot of that was due to Pele. So. Was there a Detroit team, Jamie? There was, and I'm blanking on the name. There's a Rochester, New York team called the Lancers. What was the Detroit team? I'll look it up after the show. Yeah, there was, I remember there was a buddy of mine had a Chicago Sting t-shirt that it was like vintage. Carl Heinz Rummenigge, man. Come on. Yeah, did, the yeah. did the league go broke or did they morph into MS? Kind of imploded, right? So what, what, what happened is the same thing in a weird way, and not to get too far away from your book, but what happened is kind of the same thing some people think is happening in Major League Soccer. They got a bunch of owners in and they started opening up new franchises and the owners weren't able to spend the money that they promised and uh, the thing kind of collapsed under its own weight. Um, and it was a big lost opportunity. In fact, it put the sport back in this country uh, for a good 20 years until Major League Soccer came along. And MLS has, has until fairly recently, um, been very anti-NASL as if, 
you know, connecting your teams to a tradition uh, that cities had, such as Chicago, was a bad thing. You know, they didn't want to be called, they didn't want the New York team to call the Cosmos. They didn't want to uh, use Lee Stearns, the Chicago Sting, though I know Lee, who's a, a longtime soccer booster and fan, uh, was willing to let the Chicago Fire be called the Sting. Oh, that would have been um, amazing. You know, so it's, it's a strange thing, and that, that also points up some of the kind of politics, because the other side of this is, and again, not, to, but this actually kind of wraps into what you talk about in your book. When soccer was very popular, the country was very deeply split, uh, largely over the Vietnam War. And soccer was viewed by some, especially rich urban parents, as a nonviolent alternative to American football. And it was believed that if more kids just went out and played soccer and had a good time, and this is kind of where the youth AYSO movement got started. If kids just went out and played soccer and had a good time, then you know they, would, they wouldn't be tempted by these violent sports, and, and people would be happier, and then global change would happen. This was a you know, this is nonsense. I mean, soccer's a sport, just like any other sport. And, you know, but it was, it was very indicative of some of the cultural currents. So soccer was also attacked by other sports because they saw, you know, I mean, if you're the NFL and you see a soccer team showing up and, and getting the same kind of attendance you are, you're like, whoa, these guys are going to take some of my gate revenue. And also there's all these politics around it. And, you know, the NFL guys are fairly right wing and reactionary. I don't have to, you know, that's Colin Kaepernick should be a good example of that, folks. But, you know, there were all these political currents around this this little sport. And that does wrap into what you do, because I think you very skillfully note that soccer, uh, for for everyone, has become political around the world. It is a political activity. It is a political sport. It's been referred to as a substitute for war. Uh, Neil, our sound engineer, and I were just watching Uruguay-Argentina while we were having uh, some lunch, two of the better teams. They hate each other. Um, and you talk about th that a lot in your book, and that comes through. That's that's true. Um, when you were talking about the the competition between football and soccer, uh, American football and soccer, it made me think. I kind of had this harebrained theory that there is something very American about football with the violence and sort of the division of labor, where there's positions that really get the glory. Uh, you know, a quarterback and and things like that. Uh, traditionally. Uh, you know, has been dominated by uh, by white men that have been hand selected, and and there's been much talk about the injustice uh, through the years of of that with the quarterback position. Um, so there's something very American about that division of labor, and then soccer. It's like, you know, anyone can can score a goal. Uh, I don't know if this is a harebrained theory, but when not too long ago at one World Cup, Glenn Beck said he really hated soccer and loved American football. And I was like, well, that's plus one for my theory, you know. I don't, but <laughs> there, there's no harebrained theories on I-94. Okay, great. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's uh, always welcome. Um, and, you know, I was talking to Mary, uh, the proprietor of the shop before the thing about sports writing. You know, we had Ring Lardner. Hunter S. Thompson was a sports writer. Sports writing used to be a very noble profession, you know. I mean, some of the greatest writers of our Tailies, yeah, yeah, of our time started out as sports writing, and, and you know, well, it used to be also the best remunerating. The sports section was the most read, so the sports writers tend to be the best paid. So if you were a talented writer, and you could actually write about sports and file on deadline, you would do that because that's and that elevated the quality of the writing, candidly. But it was people don't know this, but for years the sports section was millions of people read it. Millions of people didn't read necessarily the style section or the food section, but they did read the sports section, and that's why you got great guys like that in there. And that you're right, though, that's gone. Yeah, it is gone, and and, and sometimes people don't take it as seriously as they would other, you know, um, I can't think of a great novel written about football, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, I've read novels, you know, North Dallas 40, I believe, was a novel, and uh, Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk was kind of a political, uh, I didn't like the writing in that very much, but anyway, getting back to Tiger Island, <clears throat> um, a question I wanted to ask, and if it's you know a little, if it's too difficult, or if there isn't an answer, that's fine too. But how did you like just decide like, hey, I'm going to do this uh, this book about a like a you know a socialist anarchist commune that has this team and based on soccer. And and the other, the second part of the question is, you know, there's a lot. We were talking about this before the show too. There's a lot of music in your book, and you talk about a lot of. Uh, musicians and, and we were talking about musicians and literature and how those are tied in um, so how did you tie in you know the communal with music and soccer I guess if that's not too random and meandering of a question no um, 
Well, you know, it's in in a lot of ways this this book is a culmination of maybe the last decade of my life, and so you know, you just hit it like the the three my three main interests, and so they just wound up in there. Um, for a long time, I had an interest in the fiction of of countries and just how they got uh, established and how um, you know. It, there's there's been several micronations and things like that. I did a a senior seminar project in uh, undergrad on the Principality of Sealand, and uh, mailed it in to them, and they sent me back a certificate of lordship. So I was Lord Sova for a while. But um, <laughs> so so yeah, that kind of got me interested in just how countries form and how their their fictions really, uh, and then. Around the time I was writing that project, I was a part of a, uh, a soccer team in my hometown, like a club team called Jacksonopolis, which is the name of Jackson, Michigan, originally, like in the 1850s, and they they shortened it. Uh, what a bonehead move that was. But um, it's a great name. Yeah, really. Uh, so, and and we'd always kind of make jokes about our team being a sovereign nation unto itself, you know, and. Uh, and just sort of like, I guess it snowballed from there in terms of my interest in like the Israeli kibbutzim. I took a trip to Israel that was uh, pretty influential to me in 2009. And uh, yeah, it all just kind of snowballed one day to, to where I had this idea in my head rolling around for about a decade. And I was in a PhD program and uh, wasn't super into the scholarship, which is probably why I left without a degree. but. During the uh, holiday break, I was in 2013, I started putting pen to, to paper, and yeah, this is what happened. We talked a, a little bit a few weeks ago about fighting the Mighty Ducks analogy. Yeah. And um, Jamie mentioned that it's it's a YA book or crossover, one, one of those two. Um, crossover. Def- yeah. As a librarian, I'm not going to say this is a YA novel, but it's definitely got crossover appeal. Okay. Might be PG fifteen if but, there's such a thing. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's a group of sixteen year old kids who who make their way to the Olympics out from a tiny, almost unknown island, and so it's a little out there to begin with, and it has utopian ideals. So I feel like you you kind of have to. That's part of the element anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, there were a lot of r- realistic. Mm, I don't want to say hardships, but you you just built up the the realism of that world so well that it didn't seem like a fluffy, you know, rainbows and puppies kind of utopia. But I told you, you I I could tell at some point you were you were trying to balance between should I always let the good guys win or should I should I set them back a little bit? Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, that's that's true, and I really did have to. Uh, to fight against the mighty ducks you know if someone would compare this to Rocky or something like that's okay but you know I didn't I didn't want the Disney type stuff Uh, so yeah we we had some we had the boys uh, have some hard knocks along the way and uh, well they got slaughtered in that one game it was like 10 to 1 or 10 to nothing right yeah Italy yeah against against Italy that was kind of a, a you know big big defeat uh for them so yeah and and they live in the shadow of that for a while because that's what they become known for in in those uh they are like a joke you know yeah yeah and the 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 main character meets uh meets a girl his age uh when they're at rottenest island uh off the um west coast of australia and they end up having a a lunch with the girl's family and the father's like oh you're that guy that got beat 10 to 1 you know and kind of makes fun of him so yeah they have to work their way out um from that um but uh yeah it was um oh man i lost my were there any really dark elements you had in there that you took out or did you try to steer away from that well um yeah i would say the darkness there's some darkness that begins uh when the novel ends and yeah. there's uh yeah. there's a timeline 
with plot reveals in it, and and I appreciated that you read that you read the timeline as well. I read that, it was, too. that was great. Mike told me that, that was my favorite part. Read of it. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I I didn't know. Um, I, I didn't know, you know, if anyone was going to dig into that. But uh, where it gets dark, um, and I'll try not to give away the ending, but just say that uh, I was very interested to follow the case uh, of a journalist named Barrett Brown, who uh, was facing 105 years in prison at one point. Um, and just in this information age, you know, I think... Uh, the the work of people like Barrett Brown and of WikiLeaks looms large, uh, so it sort of um, ends up in that milieu. You know, I won't won't say any more for spoilers, but yeah. Did growing up in the shadows of the Michigan State Penitentiary have any influence on your politics? I'm just curious. so for those of you who don't know, Jackson, Michigan's where uh, the penitentiary is in Michigan. We used, they have a prison museum there, which I've been to, and they also have a prisoners' git shop. And I used to have a a bracelet that like one of the prisoners made i had it for years it was leather and it broke but um you know that's kind of what jackson's known for uh uh and and of course tiger island but um you know did you have any did that have any influence i mean you know you're sitting you know in proximity of this place that houses thousands of men and you know just different worlds i guess did that have any influence on your political uh political uh outlook yeah yeah i no. <laughs> that was a long question and a short answer. Yeah, right, I, w- I wish I could say it did. Yeah, it, it's kind of was surprising to me, you know, when I grew up, and it just goes to show you how just certain little quadrants of your town can be sort of cordoned off. Um, you know, I think I learned about it at, at the end of high school that it existed and that sort of thing, but. I remember being 13 years old on a, a swing set in Muskegon, Michigan. A lady asked me where I was from, said Jackson. She's like, oh, the prison, da-da-da. I was just kind of like, what are you talking about, lady? Well, my brother would always be like, you're going to go to Jackson if you get in trouble. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it was just like a, an expression. You know, at the end of the book, I don't want to spoil the ending, yeah. but um, the boys do get some redemption uh, in Athens. And uh, one of the things I actually liked about the book, just because I, I have a lot of experience in soccer, was when uh, Tiger Islands lost to Italy, Drea Perillo tore them apart, which is actually very realistic. Drea Perillo for years was Italy's great player, obviously actually plays in America uh, for a little bit, not sort of, not really, with New York City <laughs> FC. Um, but they managed to get their own back uh, in that game, as you will find out if you read through the book. I actually thought their performance at the first Olympics was fairly realistic, and it reminded me a lot of the performance, I believe it was Australia, who got uh, absolutely whipped uh-huh. in a game and then came back, drew a game, and then you know had kind of a meaningless game because they were already eliminated that they, they won. That's actually a fairly uh, common arc for soccer teams, and I wondered if you deliberately did that, knowing that you know small teams tend to you know blow up in their first game when they make their first chance at the first uh, steps onto the big stage yeah that was a similar arc to that team jacksonopolis that i mentioned uh that we played in a fairly competitive league with uh several of the teams being represented by uh basically de facto college teams that that was like their summer uh summer stay in shape league and uh i remember the first year we were sponsored by uh, a grill in jackson called bone island grill and I was on our t-shirts and we'd go there after every game and uh, we would sing our team fight song and celebrate and uh, whenever one of our teammates would walk in the door we'd go hey and it was like this big festive atmosphere and I, I happened to work at, at Bob's Country Store at the time, this, this general store in Jackson and one of the cooks from Bone Island came in our first season he's like you look familiar. Do you play on that soccer team that comes in every Wednesday night? I was like, yeah, that's me. He's like, man, you guys bring the party. You must be undefeated or something. I was like, actually, we've lost every single game, <laughs> but, but one of them. Uh, and then we sort of came apart and rebuilt. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was a familiar trajectory to me that, that, that I was able to map onto the book. 
I remember what I was going to say to to Mike's point about the realism of the of the small team uh, in the Euro tournament. Iceland, which I believe is 150,000 people total in the country. Maybe. 250, yeah. Okay. I've been there. Okay. Quarter mil. Yeah, maybe I was thinking of the Reykjavik population. But, Reykjavik uh, is, most of the population in Iceland is around Reykjavik, yeah. but I think it's around 250. Okay. Yeah, like quarter million be in uh, England drawn from 65 million. So I saw that happen and I was like, Thanks for making my novel a little more plausible, uh, guys. I appreciate that. Well, there's not we have a to lot take to a little do break, though. There is not a lot to do. Yeah. You get hot it's a beautiful place, but well, we have to take a, a, just a short little intermission pause that is going to be much shorter in real life at Pills and Community Books than it's going to be on the radio. But we have to pause for the folks that make WLPN possible. So we'll be back in uh, like six seconds here, two minutes there. Look at that. We're back. See how that works? Hey, it's amazing. My, it's called the magic of editing. I should mention that if anybody has any questions they want to ask, too, uh, we can make that happen. Toward the end of this, you can just raise your hand. Last time we had a, like, a little book that people yeah, wrote yeah. down. We don't have a wireless mic, but if you have any questions, you can raise your hand, walk up, and speak in one of these microphones, and I'm sure you would answer any questions. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, uh, kind of continuing with this theme, I, I personally thought it was a young adult novel. Jeremy is the malcontent. We, we disagree. Um, Not disagreeing. It's a crossover appeal. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my, I, my question really was, did you, did you choose to write a book? Did you go into writing this book and say, I want to write a book for kids? Or did you go into it saying, I want to write a book? And they're, they're two different things. Um, and if it's the former, what is it about children's literature that you know kind of attracted you to the genre? Because it's an interesting part of literature I don't think that gets discussed very often by the people that make it. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I... I really am fascinated by uh, moments that are times in one's life where it feels like just your world is expanding rapidly. Uh, there's there's opportunity. You could be anything. You're super excited. Um, Joan Didion had has a fantastic quote that I'm about to screw up, but it's it's something to the effect of um, you know one of the great things about being uh, 20, 21, or even 23 is that despite all evidence to the contrary, you feel like you're the first person in history to ever do this, you know? And and I know there's like Bob Dylan talks about in, in the book Chronicles where he's 20 or 19 or 20 and getting to New York City and just had this feeling that destiny was staring at him and him alone, you know? And and so those those types of moments, and I had... Uh, you know, I was lucky to experience uh, just a, a full-blown, delusional, uh, naive, fantastic moment of youth like that myself uh, at age 20 uh, after I won a, what I would call a bowling ball-sized wad of cash at the Soaring Eagle Casino in, in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. <laughs> and uh, I, I had a plan with a friend to go to Iceland. It fell through. I was talking to my sister. She, you know, said, hey, uh, our family heritage is in France, and I went there on a high school trip. You should go there. So I just went there by myself uh, and um, brought a guitar and was playing in youth hostels and uh, whipping the the backsides of various international opponents in foosball all throughout the town, or as they call it in France, le bébé foot. Um, so, you know, and I would play at a youth hostel, play my guitar to 10 people and, you know, hit the, the windswept sidewalks and think, I could be the next Bob Dylan, you know, or just something, something like that to where it's, you're, you're new in bands. And uh, so I wanted to write this book like, what would the 20-year-old me or what would someone who's, you know, maybe taking an English composition class in college at age 18 and sort of like they're becoming an adult they're finding their identity uh you know what would they want to read in that exciting time and so that's was sort of you know who i had in mind when i wrote this and and i feel like we end up in that time for the boys you know something they're going to remember for the rest of their lives in in the book yeah i don't think we mentioned the protagonist's name yet is it is it henry or is it Henri? Uh, so yeah, I mean, Tiger Island's a francophone island, so they'd probably say it Henri, but you know, for the purposes of, we can call him Henry. So, so he's the 
the protagonist of the story. He has a sister. I don't think I'm ruining anything in the book by saying that they become orphans. Yeah. Very, fairly early in the yeah, novel. Yeah, early. And um, his sister, Ruth, she moves to New York City to, uh, I think, basically... Do, a, do an MFA fiction oh, okay. program at okay. the new school. Yeah. Becomes pregnant. Mm-hmm. And a chapter starts with her writing Henry a letter. That's right. Um, saying, I, I'm pregnant. I'm not going to be cool very much longer. Here are some bands that are cool. Um, if my sister got pregnant and didn't tell me who the dad was, I would lose my mind. Oh, that, yeah. that she wouldn't tell him who the... I was actually right. thinking about right. that because if my sister... <laughs> I was like, I, I'm the malcontent of the group and I'm also nuts and I was like and I was actually as I was reading I was like if my sister did that I'd be so angry (laughs) yeah I I actually got the idea from uh, that uh, actor um, in Mad Men uh, who plays Betty Draper Um, if anyone knows her name in real life no idea never seen it January Jones that's right yeah I, I read that she did not disclose the father of her child and I just kind of thought uh you know that's that's an interesting concept just like full autonomy I'm you know this is my child and uh, my choice and I'm going to raise it and not so I kind of you know it's weird where you take your inspiration from but uh I guess that came from a clickbait in the Daily Mail you know and I got an idea from it so (laughs) did you um well two questions I Ruth was cool I liked her a lot um, as a character, and I was wondering if you thought about putting more of her in there. She didn't play too big of a part, or if you had more of her in there in different iterations of the book. Yeah, yeah, she plays a bigger role uh, in the early going of the book, um, for sure. And, uh, you know, I, I have uh, two older sisters in, in real life. Um, both have been influential to me uh, my oldest sister with music and um and my sister who's the what do you call it the middle one um heavily influential in writing she's actually a professional uh fiction writer um puts a roof over her head with it so um so yeah it was kind of uh a tricky imagining for me I, i suppose um but you know she's Hopefully, I conveyed just in in this uh, tale that you know, even though he kind of goes off into travel in, in the the latter parts of the book, that you know she was still a a big influence and um, got him turned him on to some life changing music and that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah, she lists uh, let's see, Sonic Youth, Pavement, Chemical Brothers. Basement three sonic boom pretty eclectic music taste um have you written about music in other places there wasn't too much too many other places in the novel that you wrote about music yeah um i I wrote a couple articles for ghetto blaster magazine uh i i interviewed a fella that's who's my uh favorite writer of all time um called david berman who's from a band called silver jews and uh so, so punks that, in the beer light. Punks in the yeah, beer light, absolutely. Song. And that's, you know, that was my, uh, that was a huge moment for me. I told, I mentioned I worked at Bob's Country Store, and I remember Berman at the end of his email to me with his interview questions, he wrote, P.S., don't forget to keep Bob's country. <laughs> I just said, <laughs> you know, he's always got a good one-liner like that. But, um, yeah, w- which is why... It was such a huge deal for me. I mentioned that that blurb um, that, that Jamie said at the outset from Bob Nastanovich uh, of Pavement uh, and Silver Juice. Um, it was kind of funny. I made a, a Twitter page for a, a literary magazine called The Minus Times, which is put out by Drag City Records here in Chicago. And um, The Minus Times has been a huge influence on me, and, and Bob Nastanovich was on those pages. Uh, so I connected with him on Twitter and, you know, wrote something to him, didn't hear back, forgot about it for six months and found that he had written back. Uh, and my friend Patrick, who's in the audience tonight, encouraged me to, to send another message, you know, try him. And he, he sent me his address said, you know, send it along. So, um, so I sent him the, the manuscript and he gave me this blurb and it was really big because 
you know, I've been, uh, those bands have been hugely influential to me, Pavement and Silver Juice, for about 15 years. But also, I mentioned how Tiger Island is a world, and it's a fictional world, but it, it's a world that I like going to, I hope others do. Um, and it's almost like because Pavement is in that world, it was like somebody reaching out from that world to give me a little blurb about scary it's very <laughs> it's yeah it's very you don't want to get caught in that uh dimension but, all right what's your sister's name uh my sister who's a writer yeah. uh her name's devon okay yeah devon silva that's right Does she have novels out you know she she primarily uh ghost writes that's oh, that's that's where okay. the the consistent money is at these days gotcha. um but yeah yeah somebody's got to write donald trump's books Yes, <laughs> and, and James Patterson. James uh, Patterson. He, has, well, he blurbs his own books now, which I think yeah, is really he, and he also has an army of. Yes, yeah, small oh, family. This is my best army. book that I didn't write. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, I wanted to ask you though about the world building, and it's it's interesting you mentioned that on two fronts. Um, there is a kind of a recent trend of people writing about fictional places that are set in the real world that then tend to kind of bleed over into reality. I mean, uh, Mark C. Danilewski did that a little bit with House of Leaves. Uh, obviously, it goes well before H.P. Lovecraft, but of course, you know, he had that as a prominent feature of his books um, with a fake, you know, uh, manuscript that doesn't exist. Um, I wondered if that was something that kind of drew you to it, this idea of playing with the idea of something fake in a real world and how something that is false can kind of almost metastize into something that becomes real because enough people, such as Jeremy, believe it's actually a real place. Not to poke fun at Jeremy, but... I'm just maybe a space a cadet, so it's fine. You guys can... Yeah, for, for that for that influence, uh, I, I would say Don DeLillo's Underworld had a big impact influence on me there you know he brings in i'm reading uh, that right now it's oh one of my yeah favorite novels of all time, so yeah yeah it's that's a, a great one um you know and he's got lenny bruce in there as a fictional character he's baseball. got got the baseball story line there's some more sports uh and literature um you know a j edgar hoover character so that that book had a big influence on me of uh bringing in sort of these uh uh, real places and situations and, and f fictionalizing them, if that's a word. I mean, we even get an appearance from, uh, in, in my book, from uh, Dr. Henry Heimlich of The Maneuver. Yes. <laughs> and uh, someone told me, like... Uh, I wonder if that's Dr. Heimlich's first literary appearance. <laughs> could, could be. Someone asked me if I was nervous, if he was going to get after me for that, and... Uh, he passed away about a few months before the book came out and uh, might have dodged a bullet, but uh, <laughs> he was 100 and, or, or thereabouts and had a good long life. I noticed you guys didn't have that little, um, what do you call it, the, the blurb in the beginning of most novels where it says everything in here is fictionalized, yada, yada, yada. Um, no, it doesn't re re uh, represent yeah. anybody live. Anybody or real? Yeah, yeah. Better watch out, man. Hey. Yeah. The Heimlich. It's uh, a legal oversight. Well, yeah. Well, well, the Heimlich estate is on its way. Though Heimlich's a public figure, though. I think he would have yeah, a hard time. Yeah, that's true. Hard time with Oh, uh, okay. Wallace did it in Girls with Curious Hair, that short story. Mm -hmm. uh, he did yep. it with Letterman and Trebek. I think he got sued. Over uh, I think Alex Trebek. Yeah, Alex sued. Trebek. I heard yeah. he's not a very pleasant human being in real life. No, but oh. he doesn't mean Game of Jeopardy. He, he does. does. Yes. You know? And he's very Canadian. He was also very good in shortcuts. He was very good in shortcuts. I heard he uh, blew out his Achilles tendon chasing a sheet, uh, thief from a San Francisco hotel room one time. Poor guy. Yeah, um, but uh, I told you we get off we get off topic. Yeah, all the yeah. Time. Let's. <laughs> yeah, there there was a uh, uh, in the book. There's a company too that. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this, but it's it's pretty obviously the Nestle, Nestle Corporation, yeah. which has been pillaging the water tables of my state of north in Michigan. Did you get that number from real life, 400 million gallons oh, per I think minute? So. Yeah, I that's, think a, so. that's a fairly accurate number. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. picked that up as Weren't well. They, I read a book called Blue Gold. But yeah. Weren't they poisoning the water in Africa and then trying to sell the... No, it was infant formula. They were trying to get people off infant... F they were trying to get people to stop breastfeeding their kids and sell them infant formula. Yeah. I remember. Claiming the water that was breast like milk wasn't safe and, and that sanitation wasn't there. But... Actually, the water wasn't sanitized, so the infant formula that people were making was killing their kids. 
Ugh. basically. I remember so, a friend of mine worked for Nestle, and I, I was kind of dumb when I was in my 20s, for lack of a better, uh, just a drunken fool, basically. And I remember being like, you guys are killing babies in Africa at a party or something. And I, I don't remember exactly what the – but thanks, Jamie, for the reminder. But, uh, <laughs> they're a pretty gross company. Yeah, and I had them as Nestle, and, and you know, I didn't know – I thought this would be, you know, I could write this book and also have it be a protest, and if they want to sue me, it'd probably just bring more attention to their wrongdoing, so I was like, so be it, but um, ah, I'm about to get married, and I don't want to bring someone else into that, so I changed the name, but for for those of you who hear this, it's Nestle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, that's something else I kind of wanted to ask you about. There is a strong anti-capitalist strain in the book. You, you, your team goes to South America, and the soccer players there who are playing in Jorge Wilstermann, is it? Was that right? Uh, in Brazil? In Bolivia, yeah. yeah. Bolivia, excuse me. Tell tell the kids, uh, you know, you, you're you playing in a capitalist system, but you can strike back against the greedy owners. Um, there are there's a press conference where the kids say we're going to take back the game from FIFA and the IOC. And, of course, people who know something about world sports know that both the IOC and FIFA are woefully and grotesquely corrupt. Was that something that you deliberately injected in there, or was it something that you picked up from watching world soccer and, and thinking about these kind of questions? Uh, because it is something that does exist in soccer. I mean, there are teams, anarchist teams, St. Pauli in Germany comes to mind. There are collective teams. Barcelona, if people, most people don't know this, but Barcelona and Real Madrid are both clubs. They're not corporations that mm-hmm. own them. Um, you know, the only... Are they owned by the people? Or? They're owned by people, yes. Oh, okay. Yes, the only analog we have to that is the Green Bay Packers, Packers here in, yeah. in the Socialist Collective Packers. Um, <laughs> and we don't talk about the Packers on our shows. Socialist Packers, come on. Um, <laughs> I'm a big Packers fan, man. Um, my point was, is that something you, you, you brought out of your appreciation and love for soccer, or was it something that you put in there because it fit more neatly with the kind of narrative base of Tiger Island place, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'd say the boys are coming out of this, uh, maybe what you'd call an anarcho-syndicalist commune, and so I figured that that maybe once they grow up, they would have those thoughts about like, okay, soccer is the show, uh, we're the show, but who's running the show, and, and get into that, and I was... I've been influenced by a, a British team called the Easton Cowboys and Cowgirls, uh, which is a, an anarchist uh, soccer team slash collective. And uh, they've, they've gone down to Mexico and, you know, played matches with the Zapatistas and helped them with their potable water projects. And so, so that was an influence going into this book. And there was actually this strange moment in history when uh, Subcomandante Marcos from the Zapatistas was corresponding with uh, Inter Milan, I believe, and um, the captain at the time of Inter Milan was was sympathetic to the Zapatistas' uh, struggle, and uh, Subcomandante Marcos, you know, made some joke like, come down here and play us in a friendly, like, you're going to get thrashed, you know, so moments like that in, in history kind of got me excited and, and led me into that subject matter of like players trying to change the sport from within sort of thing you uh the the novel itself most of the story takes place over what three four years yeah it's um i think when we start it's 1998 france has won the world cup and it ends in the athens olympics in 2004 so about a six year okay and then we get into the timeline which spans from Seven, mid 1700s up until 2011. Yeah, that's right. So you were talking about world building, and and a lot of the world came alive in that appendix for me. And I had asked you in an email after I read the book if if this was a much bigger thing before you um, whittled it down to what it is now, or if or if you just intentionally left it out and never thought twice about it. And you said. I want to pull oh, up the response. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you said it got unwieldy, and you said, uh, picture an emaciated, one-legged Henry Tokyo drifting in the back of a dusty, beaten-up Mercedes driven by an ex-Massad agent turned peace activist who just broke him out of a private military black site on the outskirts of Cairo. 
That yeah. sounds right up my alley. Yeah. So, so I in other, that sounded great. So in other words, totally Part Mighty two. Ducks. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Very Mighty Ducks. Yeah, if I do a trilogy, or if you, not we, you're going to write it, but you should do hey. the trilogy. <laughs> Co-write it. Yeah. Are, you, are you going to actually do more books based on time? I mean, that was actually the question I was kind of leading up to. Are you based... Are you going to try to do more stuff based on this place? Tell other stories about this place? Or do you feel like you've, you've done it, you're leaving this, and now you're moving on to something else? I think the latter, yeah. I, I hope it's all in this world. And uh, for now, I plan to leave it there. And I have an idea. So this is my first novel. And then I have an idea for um, what might come next. And, uh, you know, it'll be similar in some ways with my voice and, and hopefully humor. Uh, but it'll definitely be in a different world, yeah. We're running a little bit out of time. We've got about 10 minutes left in our show, so if anybody has any questions, they can raise their hand, and we'll Is give you over one of the mics. Is Shannon going to do readings? No. Okay. No, no voice of God today. Okay. No Did you? Uh, are there any parts you want to read from the novel? Um, yeah, I can read a, a part. So. Um, I, I really love the last paragraph of the the novel proper but i don't know if you want to oh yeah i know my friend dave hasn't uh read it all so okay. i don't want to leave right. i don't want right. to read the right. end of it <laughs> he says it's okay dave is that your baby uh, there those you just of you, found one on the street those of you who are That's awesome we have this adorable toddler here that is so well behaved i work in a public library and i when i see well-behaved toddlers it's a very That's exciting Pollyanna. oh <laughs> that's okay that's okay um that's one well-behaved toddler so what, what did you want to read from? Yeah, so uh, here's a, a section where Henry uh, is is telling us a bit about how he became an orphan, and uh, he talks about his his mother's death and uh, a question that, that maybe hung over him for a while about it. And uh, we end up when uh, he's in Jamaica, the boys are playing international teams for, uh, for the first time. So... A man walking his dog found my mother's body on the western beach on May 4, 1989. The coroner discovered an aneurysm and ruled out foul play. My father laid in bed with me in the dark, trying to quiet my wailing. Go to sleep, Henry, he said, his voice cracking. When my team started playing bigger matches, internationals, I never got hung up on the question of whether or not she'd have been proud of me. I like to think she'd at least have had enough compassion to grant me a blind eye. Something else haunted me about my mother's death, though, some other question. I'd burst awake sometimes, cold, sweating, and trembling from a nightmare about it. When I was in Jamaica in March of 2000, right after my 17th birthday, I asked someone. A 30-something woman, Tanish, chatted with me at a dance hall in Spanish Town, and before long our conversation bounced from soccer to the music of Sister Nancy to the supernatural. Have you ever talked to the dead, Tanish said. No, I said, but I'd like to. I'd like to talk with my mother. A serious look came to her face. I talk to the dead all the time, she said. I have a gift for it. For real? Yes, for real. And I have my own website. You don't believe me? Well, I said, I couldn't. I mean, I do believe you have a website. She gave a tisk and reached into her pocket. Her card said, Tanish Henry, medium. I looked back up at her and said, my name's Henry, too, but with an I. My first name, I mean. She slugged her drink and set the glass upside down on the bar. All right, Henry, with an I, she said. You can call me or email me. And since you're a soon-to-be famous footballer, I'm taking 10% off when you set up a session with me. But I should be charging double because everyone who comes says it's an experience worth its weight in gold. I told my brother Gregor about my run-in with Tanish later that night in the lobby of our hotel. You should totally do it, he said, examining her card. I smirked, a little floored at his suggestion. But it's fake. Of course it's fake, he said, but it could be awesome. Coach Thomas said we're here also to meet people and to listen to them. Gregor turned towards Etienne's younger brother, David, surfing the web for $15 an hour on the hotel's computer. Davey, he said, Henry and I need to look up this website and send an email real quick. After our two-to-one win against Jamaica's U23 squad at Independence Park the next day, Gregor and I knocked on the door to Tanisha's house on Cypress Drive in Spanish Town. Coach Thomas reluctantly gave her blessing on the condition that we bring a burner cell phone and return to the hotel before 11 p.m. Gregor held a jar of jam in one hand and jackfruit in the other. 
I had a bottle of Appleton Estate rum tucked under my arm, along with the cash for Tanisha and my sock. I expected a house filled with strange clocks and jars and baby doll heads with candles on top of them, but when Tanisha answered the door in a simple orange dress, all I found stepping inside were baby blue walls and modest decor, family pictures and stuff. She was a custodian at the University of the West Indies in addition to her home business as a medium. She cooked us barbecue chicken and seemed pleased we ate so much. We drank goat's milk and a little rum and talked about her home village called Snowden. Then she set up 20 candles of various sizes and colors, lit them with a single long match, and served me a thimble-sized mug of steaming ayahuasca tea. She said, drink it, and turned off all the lights. 20 minutes passed while we sipped tea in the dark, listening to a Sam Cooke record. I could only see Tanisha's silhouette, but I heard, are you ready? Yes, I said with heavy eyelids and a solemn countenance. What's her name? Esther, I said. Tanisha's voice boomed low. I'm reaching out to you, Esther, mother of Henry. He's here, a young man who has words for you. She shook her fists on both sides of her head with her eyes closed. Her bracelets jingled and, all the, and the candles all danced and cast a glow on her purposive face. Gregor and I exchanged an intense glance. His perspiration mustache glistened. Tanish uttered soft, indiscernible words for a half minute before her white eyes sprung open, staring into mine. I have her here, she said, motioning to her right. Speak, child. I hesitated. Nervous sweat beaded on my forehead. Gregor noticed me, struggling, bogged in a million thoughts. A minute is a darn long time to sit tongue-tied during a seance. I might lose her, Tanish said. She's next to me, but she only wants to stay a little longer. My first day of school rushed to my mind, the day my mother straightened my shirt with a backdrop of waves and morning sunlight. The smell and sounds of the giant lake crept into my senses, then a bitter image on the shore. Cool fresh water sloshed against her lifeless body and jet black hair. Tanish and Gregor seemed to beg me with their eyes as tears stood in mine like rabbits ready to bolt. Gregor put his hand on my shoulder and squeezed. It's okay, brother, he said. The image broke and my eyes rose to meet Tanisha's. I want to ask her, I said slowly. At the end, was there any pain? The room became very quiet. Tanish sank back in her chair. She looked to her right and nodded as if listening to someone. To this day, neither Gregor nor I can explain how she could have possibly known this. But after a moment, Tanish turned to me and said, Esther tells me no pain. She says she went to the beach and woke up from a dream. Anybody want to ask a question? Anyone? Patrick. We've only got two minutes left, so be quick. Two-minute warning. Yeah, we're at the two-minute. Come on Go up. Go for it. Come on up. Hey. Tell us your name, too. Uh, my name is Dakota. Um, I know a lot of people that write and do writing, um, but it seems like it's hard to get to the novel stage. Did you always know you wanted to write a novel or was it just this idea came, this was the only, only format for it? Yeah, I'd been writing short stories for, for a good while and spinning yarns at the pub with friends and things like that. And yeah, this was the first idea that came to me that I knew needed that, that longer form. Um, Though, if I didn't have the, the foundation of working on short stories, uh, I don't know if I could have managed it. And, and even though I managed it, you know, just barely, just, just by, uh, just ran it in uh, in the nick of time. So, yeah, that um, short stories were, were big. And, you know, I think that's how it, it tends to go for anyone else who's written a novel thanks all right thank you guys we want to give reagan a big round of applause here we want to give you a big round of applause too thank you for coming out to pills and community books tonight we'll be back on october 19th i-94 is lumpen radio's books and literature program airing every sunday at 10 a.m central this episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Pilsen Community Books on August 31st and featured a discussion of Tiger Island by Regan M. Sova. The episode originally aired on September 3rd, 2017. 
I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive.